Hi, we're Donnie and Heather Van Curen. Uh, last year, January 30th, uh, Heather was sick for about three to four days. Uh, we thought she had the flu and we're giving her medication. She was in bed, didn't eat for about four days. And it got so bad that on Saturday night, I took her to the emergency room where a friend of ours met us. And uh, within about 24 hours, I found out that she had sepsis. She was um, needed to be put on dialysis um, on a ventilator and basically sedated. And so the morning of January 31st, uh, Heather was uh, put under and remained under for about 14 days. Good morning that all this happened, I didn't expect it to, uh, you don't expect something like this and to wake up spending two weeks on the floor at the ICU and uh, dealing with uh, the possibility of losing your wife and uh, having to tell your kids what was going on and a house full of family and people taking care of you. Uh, it was something I'd never experienced in my life uh, and, and don't know that you can ever prepare for something like that. It's something you just uh, really have to roll up your sleeves and go through. To be specific is I have a gentleman that's been married 20 years that lost his wife this year. I think every time I work with him, I, I find myself later going, easily could have been me. Um, easily could have been my journey and my challenge during this last year. Uh, but I think it's just um, recognizing that it didn't have to be this way. God blessed us. He answered prayers. Uh, he was a good God because this is what he decided to get us through. And he allowed us to, to be together for, for longer. And so you want to take full advantage of that. And you want to you bless him and, and thank him. And you want to be a good steward of the blessings because we may not have another year. Uh, so I, I'm thankful that God answered our prayers. Hey, good morning. Our series is called Valleys, and uh, I get asked from time to time, Mark, how do you come up with these series, and why do you get so pumped about them? And, and the truth be told, just being real with you, all these series pretty much come out of personal Bible studies. These are just studies that I have because I want to learn more about God, and, and I really started this study last July in a week off that I took uh, to just take time to reflect and think. And I, you guys who, who heard intensive care, you know that I had a, a season of just exhaustion and and difficult feelings, you know, at the end of 2010, anxiety, and, and it was a valley experience. And so last July, I wanted to learn what the Bible had to say about valleys. You know, of course, there are times when the Bible gets metaphorical with us, and it'll use a term like valley. A valley is a low place, and oftentimes it communicates about the low places that you and I encounter in life, and it calls that place a valley. So I started studying those metaphorical expressions about valleys, and, and that's how this series came out. Today, we're talking about the valley of blessing. Next week, we'll talk about the valley of suffering. Week three, probably one of the most intriguing messages I'll ever bring in my career is called the valley of vision. You'll, you, you definitely don't want to miss that one. And then, of course, I'll go the fourth week where you would expect me to go, Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death. But life is going to bring us through valleys. It's going to bring us through low places. And you understand, of course, I'm not talking about just your garden variety difficulty that you encounter on a day-by-day basis because all of, all of us have those issues. I'm just talking about when you encounter that season in your life, and season is the operative word, when you encounter that season in your life where a storm or a crisis or a valley comes out of nowhere, and it has the, it has the potential to threaten something very precious in your life. It could threaten your family. It could threaten your career could threaten your health. It could actually threaten your very life itself. And some of you have been through, as I, many seasons of, of valleys. Others of you maybe never have really been through anything like this. 
Or maybe you've just been through one or two, whatever, but for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about these things. And I'm going to ask your indulgence to talk about some of life's difficulties for the next four weeks. For some of you, it's going to be very intense because you are in a valley right now. I love what Zig Ziglar said. He said, if you treat everyone as if they're hurting, you just treated 90% of people correctly. So it's very possible that when I'm talking to you today, you're not having to have an explanation. You did not need the last three minutes of my message. You already know what a valley is because you were there right now. Today, though, we're going to start in a really interesting place, and I'm not sure this is the correct place to start. It's just where my study started. I want to talk to you about the Valley of Blessing, which is actually a season when trouble has just ended. It is after you've just been through a crisis that threatened to destroy your life. Uh, Interesting because it's a Valley of Blessing. Well, let me read it to you, and you'll see where I get this. This is in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 26. On the fourth day, they gathered in the Valley of Blessing, which got its name that day because the people praised and thanked the Lord there. It is still called the Valley of Blessing. Uh, the reason why this is kind of interesting to me, and it caught my attention the first time I read it, is normally I have a very different idea of winning. In my mind, winning, after you win a battle, you're standing on top of the mountain peak, the wind blowing through your hair, or in my case, the wind blowing on your scalp, and <laughs> in the background is the soundtrack of Queen singing, We Are the Champions of the World. That's kind of how I envision winning. And for those of you who don't have too many of these seasons in your life to fall back on, you may think that. But for those of us who have been through these seasons of valleys, when our very existence or our family or our health or career was threatened, you know that oftentimes when you, when you emerge from that valley or you emerge from that crisis, you're not standing on the mountaintop. You're gasping for air, amazed that you're still here. And you will find yourself, instead of standing on the mountain peak, beating your chest, crowing for the rest of the world to see, you will find yourself just barely having survived, and you will be in a a valley. Hopefully, it will be a valley of blessing. Um, Let me give you a little background in this story. I don't want to take too awfully long to develop this, but you should know the characters, the cast of characters. Um, The story goes back to the time of the kings in the Bible. And as you know, if you've read the Bible, there are, you know, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles are sprinkled in there in the major and minor prophets. There are stories of kings. There are kings of Israel and kings of Judah. After Solomon, the kingdom split. And it will seem, if you read the Bible, some of you are reading through the Bible right now, and it will seem as if there are two kings on the throne at the same time. That is because there is the northern kingdom, ten tribes of Israel, and known as Israel, and then there are the southern kingdom, two tribes, the tribes of Judah. So Israel has a king and Judah has a king. And oftentimes the Bible has this simple thing to say about a king. He either did that which was right in the sight of the Lord or he did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. Good kings are defined as those who do what is right. Bad kings are described as those who did what is evil. Well, Jehoshaphat was a good king. And the Bible says, as it says about other kings, he did that which was right. But I love some of the things that the Bible adds for us to see about Jehoshaphat. He's a special person. The Bible said that um, he obeyed God. Kings don't always obey. You know, as someone has said, it's good to be king. The idea of king is self-determination. You can do whatever you want to do. But Jehoshaphat didn't take that attitude. He obeyed God. And then the Bible adds something that I hope all new springers will embrace today. The Bible says he was a seeker and a follower of God. That's two very different concepts. 
Seeker means you ask God for his will. Follower means you obey it when you get it. Sometimes we are cafeteria Christ followers. We pick and choose parts of God's will that we like. And God blessed Jehoshaphat. Rock on, Jehoshaphat. He, he was a king who was chasing after God, and then when he found God, he obeyed God. And then, I love this, and maybe, I don't know if this will appeal to you as it does to me, but there's this in chapter 19, verse 4. Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, but he went out among the people, traveling from Beersheba to the hill country, that's from one end of Judah to the other, encouraging the people to return to the Lord. And you know, we, our politicians and leaders, are, we, we see them make, you know, get on a bus and go across the country and make stops. Or back in the old days, they would get on a train and do a whistle stop tour. And, and, and what they're doing is to gin up political support. And we don't blame them for that. You know, it's just getting out among the people. It's rubbing shoulders with people and getting your message out. But what I love about Jehoshaphat, if you'll allow me the anachronism, he had a bus tour as soon as he became king. And it wasn't to gin up support for Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat went out to towns and cities, and he encouraged his people to obey God. Wow, what I wouldn't give for a leader like that in America today. I mean, this, is, this guy, I'm, I'm telling you, he's something else. And, you know, when I study his story, I get the feeling that he was a humble kind of guy. I don't think he necessarily chose to be king. I think he was the kind of guy that would sit in a room, look at himself in the mirror with a crown on, thinking, how did I ever get to be king? And, yeah, he made mistakes, and he did some dumb things. But he was trying. Sound familiar? Sound like most of us? We love God. We're chasing after God. You're, you're, the fact that you're here today, you're chasing after God. And, you, and you're trying to do the right thing. I mean, we do some dumb things, don't we? But I think that's Jehoshaphat. He's just, a, he's just the kind of guy you and I would like. He's a new springer. He had a heart for God. He was serious about God, chasing after God, doing stupid stuff on occasion. But by and large, he was trying to follow God. And I don't think he was crazy about being king. It was just that life told him he was king. I don't know when Jehoshaphat's lights came on as a little boy, but somewhere around the time he was two or three, year old, three, three years old, somebody explained to him he was the crown prince and someday he was going to be king. Didn't have any choice, just happened to be born in that family. Life told him he was king. Maybe up to now you don't see any similarity between his life and your life, but we live in the United States of America, and in a kind of strange way, life communicates to you and me that we are kings. Someday I'm going to do a series called It's My Life, and we're just going to study the lives of the kings because I think that the kings in the Bible are very similar to you and me as Americans. I mean, we live in the land of the rule of the people, so in a way, we're sort of kings. In the sphere of self-determination, you can make choices. You can decide what you're going to do about a lot of things in life. And then on top of that, most of us are kings in the sense that we have other people looking to us. We're responsible for other people. So just as life told Jehoshaphat that he was king, my guess is that life has told all of, all of us here today that we too are kings. But life has a cruel way about it. Because just as it's fitting us for a crown, life has a way of bringing along situations that prove very quickly that we don't have any control at all. And embarrassing in front of all the people who are looking to us to prove that we don't have any control. And that's what happened to Jehoshaphat. Just as he was settling in as king. In fact, he had done so many good things. The Bible will say after this in 2 Chronicles 20 verse 1. And if you read that chapter 19, basically what he did was he taught the judges not to take bribes. He got all the leaders in place. 
made them promise that they would obey God and do the right thing. I mean, he, he was straightening out the country, got the budget balanced, did all these kinds of good things. And he was all prepared to take a deep breath and enjoy being king. And yet the Bible says after this, the armies of the Moabites, Ammonites, some of the Meonites declared war on Jehoshaphat. And messengers came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army from Edom is marching towards you and they are already at, there's the name of a town, just read that 35 miles away. I mean, just as Jehoshaphat is saying, oh, I can settle in and sit on the throne and enjoy being king, he gets a phone call that says, oh, guess what, sir? There's this huge army coming to you. It's the Moabites, Ammonites, Meonites, Termites. Everybody is ganged up against you. And oh, by the way, they're 35 miles away. See, I think that's what life does to us. Just as soon as it convinces us we're king, along comes the crisis situation, and oh, we don't have any control at all. I mean, you need to understand. I mean, when Jehoshaphat heard that this vast army was bearing down on him, please, please, please understand. He was not saying, okay, how can we absorb this and what will we be left over after we have this war? This was a crisis that had the potential to absolutely obliterate Judah. There would be no Judah after this attack. This is the kind of crisis that could threaten your family, or your health, or your career, or your very life itself. And you should understand something about the people groups that were coming against Jehoshaphat. They, they weren't only going to obliterate Jehoshaphat. They were extraordinarily brutal people. They would brutalize them in the process. The Moabites. Just take them, for instance. The Moabite king had offered his teenage son, burned him alive as a hope of appeasing their God. I mean, listen, let me tell you, when you're dealing with a king who will kill his own son and burn him alive as a sacrifice to his God, you can be sure that he's not going to observe the Geneva Convention with conquered peoples. And I don't even want to tell you about the Ammonites. History tells us the Ammonites were one of the most brutal peoples in the history of the world. They were ruthless. They would not only kill at the drop of a hat. Historians tell us that when they invaded a country, they would take little children, grab them by their ankles, and dash their heads against stones. They would rip open pregnant women. These, I mean, when Jehoshaphat heard this word, it was like, wow, these are not just people that are going to wipe us off the face of the mouth. These are people that will enjoy brutalizing us while they're killing us. When I read this story, it makes me think about so many of the valleys that I've been through. Because, you know, if you've ever been through this, you need to understand that it's not just a matter of natural things that will come against you. Just as you have a God who loves you, you have an enemy who hates you. And he has a signature way, and I stress signature way, of bringing several problems together to morph into one crisis. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. You will find these armies on your border. It'll be a health problem, but then on top of that, it'll turn out to be a family problem, and then there'll be a career problem, and then there'll be something else. It's like he has a, he has a way of making all these crises morph into one, and you say to yourself, if I, I could deal with one of these. I have a friend who was fighting for his life with a very aggressive form of cancer, but he, he had lost his income. And I remember him saying, if, if I had the income, I could fight this. But I mean, he was dealing with several things at one time. And if you've been there, you know what it's like. And Josphat said, if it's just the Moabites, or if it was just the Ammonites, or just the Meonites, but, or just the Edomites. But it was all four that ganged up on him. 
And then something else that many of you will find interesting or personal, he was, by the time he got the word, they were 35 miles away. There was no time to game plan. There was no time to develop evasive plans. It was several problems morphing into one, and he was out of time. What do you do when that happens to you? What's your game plan? How are you going to handle that? When you, and you're going to face it, and, and I faced it many times, and I'm going to face it again if God lets me live. What are you going to do when those armies amass 35 miles away, and you know that they not only have the power to overcome you, they have the power to hurt you in the process? Well, let me tell you a couple things that you're going to be tempted to do that fortunately Jehoshaphat didn't do. I think Jehoshaphat was tempted to run away. Wouldn't you be tempted to run away? I mean, because after all, I mean, I, I see Jehoshaphat. Don't you know, I mean, there, there were days between when he got the word and when they actually went out to face the enemy. There were days, I don't know, was it a week, two weeks, six weeks? I don't know how long it was, but there was a protracted period of time where Jehoshaphat, and, and if any of you have ever been through the crisis that threatens your life, you'll know the most difficult thing is to get up in the morning, shower, dress, and go on like nothing else is going on. Go, go to work. Or try to process being a, a wife or a husband or a mom or dad when you're in this crisis that threatens your very life. And I see Jehoshaphat. Can you see him get dressed in the morning? I mean, he puts the robe on and he puts the crown on his head and he thinks to himself, what a cruel joke. Um, some king. Oh, what a dumb thing. I mean, to put the crown on my head when I, I can't even take care of myself, much less my own people. Maybe I hear him say under his breath, I don't want to be king anymore. <laughs> I mean, it was fun when they were having the parades and the coronation and all that, and Jehoshaphat was a popular king. The people loved him, and the Bible goes on to say that they brought him presents. And I think Jehoshaphat, when he's unwrapping all those presents and he's the brand new king, he's thinking, it's good to be king. But on this day when he's dressing, after he's heard this horrible news, he's thinking, I don't want to be king anymore. And that's going to happen with many of us. You get married, it's good to be king. Lord knows I stood before hundreds of couples, especially one of my favorite moments at a wedding is um, when the unity candle's been lighted. And usually there's a song at the lighting of the unity candle. The song takes four or five minutes. It takes a few seconds to light a unity candle. So I always coach couples up on what to do when they're standing in front of the unity candle. Most of the time they'll hold hands like this, look into each other's eyes. The unity candle's glowing behind them. And I've, I've been there with, you know, only inches away from watching that bride and groom so many times. You can just feel the sizzle and electricity. It's good to be king. And after great sex, it's good to be king. But I'll tell you what, if you're married long enough, there'll be a time when you say, I don't want to be king anymore. Let somebody else be king and be married to this jerk. I don't want to be king anymore. Let somebody else try to be married to her. I don't want to be king. Got a brand new baby in the hospital. You look in the little eyes, little delicate, tender fingers. You wrap his fingers, her fingers around yours. And you think it's good to be king. Oh, it's wonderful to be a parent. And then that boy turns 13. You're thinking, I don't want to be king anymore. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. We're tempted to run away. And you know what? Many people do run away. They run away and leave unfinished business. A valley's there, a storm is coming, something that threatens them, and, and they just say, I don't want to be king anymore, I'm responsible when I'm running away. The other temptation is the American way, and that is to get it up and get tough and say, we can do this. And Jehoshaphat could have done that. He could have held a big pep rally, and he could have said, 
Believe in yourselves. Reach down deep inside and pull something out. Let's go out and fight this enemy. I love college football. Do you ever like watch one of these college football games where we and one of these little teams manages to get on the schedule of a powerhouse? And you watch this little team run down the tunnel, and they're like, yeah, and they, yes, we're going to do it. And then at the end of the first quarter, it's 64 to nothing. <laughs> you know? See, here's the thing. For Jehoshaphat to say to his people, hey, there may be four armies, but we can take them. We can just look deep within ourselves and believe in ourselves. He would have had to, number one, sold himself on a lie and sold the people around him on a lie that they could do something they couldn't do. This is not my talk today, but let me just tell you this. The most destructive force you can ever allow into your life is deception. If there is any part of you that's beginning to be deceptive, if you pretend to be one thing and you're not, if you're covering something up, you may feel like you're a king, but let me tell you, you're not king anymore. It has control of your life, and it will take your life over. And if you ever begin to lie to yourself, the most destructive force you can allow into your life is deception. And so it would have been the case for Jehoshaphat if he had said, yeah, we can do this. Instead, he did not. He did five things. And I want to show you, if you ever face a crisis in your life, these five things are absolutely powerful. Let me go through them real quickly. What did Jehoshaphat do? Well, chapter 20, verse 3. Jehoshaphat was terrified by the news, but he begged the Lord for guidance. Number one, he turned to God. And notice, the first thing he asked for wasn't help. The first thing he asked for was direction. See, many times we want God to rescue us, but what we need more than anything else is we need God to coach us up. We need to know how to think, how to function. And Jehoshaphat was saying, God, I'm terrified. I'm scared out of my wits. And he turned to God. The second thing, in chapter 20, verses 3, and four, or chapter three uh, 20, verse 3, he ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. For us Americans, that means going without food. Do you know what was going on in Judah? These are people that were trying to follow God, but the thing was they were as, as business as usual. They were eating, they were drinking, they were partying, they were living life. All of a sudden there was a crisis, and Jehoshaphat said, time out, everybody. We're going to stop business as usual, and we're going to seriously turn to God. Number three, he prayed, oh, Lord, you are ruler of all kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. I love number three, Jehoshaphat in the presence of his people took his crown off and he laid it at the feet of the real king. He had said, God, I'm not ruler, you're ruler. You control this. And I tell you what, God, we can't face this enemy, but no enemy can face you. And then number four, look at this. He said, we are powerless against this mighty army that's about to attack us. We don't know what to do. Boy, it's important for a leader to say, we don't know what to do. And here is the interesting thing about that. When he said, we don't know what to do, he was surrounded by his people. He was surrounded by people who looked to him to be king. But he was not embarrassed to stand before his own people and look toward heaven and say, God, I don't know what to do. He was gut level honest. Guys, let me just tell you from somebody who's been through some crises in his life, this is a powerful moment when you can strip all the paint down and get down to bare metal and you can say to God, God, I'm scared out of my wits and I don't know what to do and I'm not embarrassed for anybody around me to know that I don't know what to do, but my eyes are upon you. 
We read, and I get this picture in my head. I love this. All the men of Judah with their wives, children, little ones stood there before the Lord. Here is a king who is in charge with his arms outstretched to heaven with his crown lying on the ground before God and all his people. Jehoshaphat's not ashamed for his people to see him holding out his hands to God. And on top of that, their children are there. Even the kids were watching as the adults reached out their hands to God. Wow, that's game-changing. And it was that day too. Because about that time, God spoke to a prophet, and he had the prophet say this to Jehoshaphat. This is in chapter 20, verse 15. Many of you who are Christ's followers will recognize a very famous line of Scripture coming from this. He said, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Listen, King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army. And here's the line that many of us know. For the battle is not yours, it's God's. There's something going on here bigger than you. There's a fight bigger than you understand. It's not your battle. It's God's battle. God has decided to own it. Tomorrow, march out against them. You will find them coming up, but you'll not even need to fight. Take your positions and then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you, O people of Judah and Jerusalem. And then notice how this same expression brackets it at the end. Don't be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow. Listen. This could be a sermon within itself, and I'll just throw it at you, and hopefully all of us will process this. If you, like Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah, if you can overcome cowardice, and if you can overcome pride, the only, only enemy you have left is discouragement. Because here is, this is golden. When God helps you out of a crisis or through a crisis, there will always be a period of time, there will be a season between when you pour out your heart before God and you actually see deliverance. During that season, the key is not to succumb to discouragement. Someone as well said discouragement is a handle that fits all of Satan's tools. Well, just to keep score, just so that we didn't lose this, what exactly did Jehoshaphat do in the crisis? Number one, he turned to God. Number two, he stopped business as usual. Number three, he took off the crown and laid it at the feet of God. Number four, he became totally honest. And so now, get this, you got this in your mind? Judah and King Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat's at the front. They're going out to meet the enemy. And all of a sudden, Jehoshaphat just says, stop, everybody. we got one more thing we need to do here. I have loved this story since I was a little kid. I, I don't know warfare that much. I never have been in the military, but I've done some reading about it. And I understand that warfare in those days is very important how you would fight the battle. So the question would come up, just who would be your advance guard? Do you want the archers out front? That's what I would put out front. I would have put the archers in front because they could launch arrows and maybe pick off some of the uh, attacking forces first. Others would put the cavalry out front, the guys on horseback. Some would have put the catapults or any kind of engines of warfare out front. So Jehoshaphat stopped everybody and said, we have the wrong group in front. <laughs> Look at this. In chapter 20, verse 21, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. Jehoshaphat said, let's put the worship team out front. Are you kidding me? This is the most important thing Jehoshaphat did. Put yourself in his place. He has heard a prophet say that God would win. But Jehoshaphat still has not seen that happen yet. And at this moment, Jehoshaphat does not know for certain whether they will live through the day or they will die. 
He does not know for sure if God will deliver them or if their blood will be spilled out there on the plain by these four advancing armies. But he has made a decision as he leads his people out. And here is the decision that this man made. He has said, I don't know. We may live, we may die, but if we go down, we are going to go down praising God. The last thing the enemy is going to hear is the enemy is going to hear us praising God. If God chooses not to deliver us, the last thing he will hear before our death is he will hear us praise his name. We may go down, but we're going to go down praising God. (laughs) You You understand, there's no power in why did this happen to me. There's no power in that. It may be true, it may be legitimate, but there's no power there. There's no power in why do, why do I have to do this or, or I, this isn't fair. There's no power in that. God's people through the millennia have found a way. Those real champions, those men and women of, who were champions, they had a way of saying when they faced the crisis of their life, I may go down, but if I go down, I'm going to go down praising God. Satan told God that Job would curse him to his face if he would just allow God, if God would just allow him to take his stuff away. And in Job chapter 1, you see how that Satan hit Job hard, took all of his possessions away, killed all 10 of his children on one day. And instead of cursing God, Job said, well, you know, I didn't come in with anything and I'm not going to leave with a U-Haul. So I'm going to find some way to say something good about God. And God said to Satan, you see, my boy. What about Esther? Queen Esther, queen of Persia, a Jewish girl. And yet there was an evil man, Haman, who had concocted a scheme to kill all the Jewish people. And Esther decided to do something that would would risk her life. She went in to see Ahasuerus the king without being invited. That That was an act of treason, even though she was queen. She was risking her life. But do you remember what that noble woman said before she walked in to see Ahasuerus? She said, if I perish, I perish. What about Daniel? Remember when he carried away captive as a kid to Babylon? He, became, he, he rose through the ranks. He became a great leader, even though he was a Jew in the most powerful re- regime in the world. And you remember that there were those who were envious of Daniel and they found a way to get a law passed that anyone who prayed to any god other than the king would be cast into a den of lions to be executed that way. Daniel prayed three times every day. Do you remember what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 6? The Bible says when Daniel knew that the law had been signed, he went home and he opened the windows of his house. He did not pray in his closet. He opened the windows of his house where everybody in the kingdom could see and he got down on his knees and he prayed And I love what the Bible says, just like he did beforehand. That was Daniel's way of saying, you can throw me in the lines if you want to, but the last thing God's going to hear is a prayer. It was in that same time frame also in the book of Daniel that there were three young men. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's sad that we know them that way because those were names that the Babylonians gave them to worship their idol gods. Their real names, their Jewish names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the king said, this was, a, this was an age of political correctness. This was, a king, this was an age where everybody just went along. I mean, nobody wanted to be laughed at at late night comedy shows. And the king erected a statue. And it was just political correctness, but the thing was everybody had to bow. Everybody had to submit to this statue. 
And the king said, here's the deal. Everybody has to bow. We're going to have uniformity here. We're not going to have multiple ways of thinking. We're going to have uniformity. Everybody has to bow down to this image. And if you don't bow down to the image, we're going to throw you in a furnace. And in that kingdom were three young men, as I said, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who had been brought over from Israel. They're, 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 the whole thing was they were to be taught at the Babylonian universities. They were to learn the Babylonian way of life and become missionaries for Babylonian culture back in their own people. And they did that. They took names that they didn't want. Can't help what people call you. And they went through and they made good grades in school and they got good jobs and they went on. But when that moment came, when they were told that they had to violate their conscience and do what they knew was wrong, they said, we will not bow. And then the king had set it up so that when the people heard music, that was their cue to bow down to the statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up and I hope God kept this on video because I want to see it. I just imagine in my mind how tall those three guys stood in a sea of backsides. So the king brought them in and said, you guys are from the Midwest. And you just don't understand how things are done in the big city. You got to go along to get along, you know. Everybody bows. And all you got to do, we're going to give you another chance. We're going to give you some time here. We're going to give you one more chance, and when you get out there, you don't necessarily have to believe it. Just bow down. And I don't know which one it was, if it was Hannah, Michelle, Azariah. Maybe they all said the same time. They said, sir, we really don't matter. It doesn't matter to us how many times you play the song. We just want you to know we will not bow, and we believe our God will deliver us. But if he doesn't deliver us, we just want you to be clear on one thing, sir. We are not going to bow. I'm telling you in this age of political correctness, in the 21st century, we need some women with the spirit of Esther. We need some guys with the spirit of Hannah. Mishael Nazariah who said I don't care what's politically correct I will not violate my conscience for this world man we we need to find some grit I mean because after all there's always this pressure from the enemy that says violate your conscience bow down go along to get along It made the king so angry that he heated up the furnace seven times hot. I don't know what that means, but he heated it seven times hotter than ever. Because, I mean, they weren't just going to they weren't going to just incinerate these guys. They were going to make a point. In fact, it was so hot that it, it, it killed the soldiers who threw them in. And Nebuchadnezzar was watching from a safe distance from his amphitheater, and he looked down and he said, <clears throat> uh, come, come help me here a moment. Did we, did we put three guys in there? And they said, yes, sir, there, there were three. And he said, well, I, I see four. <laughs> and they're walking around, and they don't have, just nothing's wrong. Just the, by the way, anytime you get thrown into the furnace for following God, only the ropes burn off, and you become a very dangerous Christ follower. He said, I see four, and that fourth one's different. <laughs> All I'm telling you is when you come to the place where you're facing your crisis, and you say, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. I don't know if this is going to break me or if it's going to make me. I don't know if my family's going to survive. I don't know if my marriage is going to survive. I don't know if I'm going to have my health. I don't know if I'm going to be healed. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know this. If I go down, I'm going to go down praising. And uh, number five, the fifth thing that Jehoshaphat did is in a humble, gracious kind of way, he put God on the spot. When you put your singers out in front of the army, you've really put God on the spot. But you know, something happens cosmically when God's children like Esther and Daniel and 
the others in Job. Something happens cosmically when God's people say that. It tends to move heaven. Read this. And there are no words wasted in the Bible. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set, we don't even know what that means, the ambush is there. We don't know if that's angels. We don't know what that means. Bible scholars are just totally unclear. What does it matter? As they begin to sing, God said, I'm going to have to do something here. And God sent ambushes and destroyed the enemy. And then you can read this. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. They found a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value, more than they could take away. It took three days to collect it. And then our verse, on the fourth day, they gathered in the Valley of Blessing. These were people that had the life scared out of them. They did not come out on the mountaintop beating their chest. They, they just basically came out in the valley and said, God, you brought us through. What do we do when we're in the valley of blessing? It's a complicated place. For those of you who've been there, you know what I'm talking about. It is a complicated place. You, as I said, you don't come out crowing and beating your chest singing, we are the champions. It's like... Oh, God, that was close. On one hand, you're exhausted. On the other hand, you're elated. On one hand, you feel relief. On the other hand, you know that if God hadn't saved you, you'd be so dead. I've seen people do the wrong thing in the Valley of Blessing. You know, I've prayed for people through the years that were in some sort of crisis. Either maybe it's their marriage about to fall apart or maybe their health. And, 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 and I've prayed for them, God, would you, and I've prayed for them many, many times in the day, God, please help this person. And I've seen God miraculously deliver that person, and I've seen them turn out to be a total pain in the rear end. Because I, they, they, they come out of that with some sort of feeling of special, it's like, okay, God took care of me. He must think I'm something special. And the next thing you know, this person is telling everybody else what they should do. I've actually gone to God and apologized for praying for such people. <laughs> I've even said, Lord, if they're not going to get it, don't do anything for them. How do you handle it when God brings you through? I've been through there several times, and here's what I thought about. Let me tell you about a situation that happened in a compressed period of time. Oh, about five or six years ago, I'd been speaking in Texas, and I was driving back to Kansas. I drove back very early in the morning. I had a little tiny car, and it was on the turnpike, turnpike at mile marker, I think, 38. And it just started to rain, and the gust of wind caught my car, and I felt the back of it just give away. It wasn't that it screeched or anything, or it was sudden. It just very gently, I felt my back wheels give away on a curve. And the next thing I know, I'm going up the turnpike backward at 73 miles an hour, thinking I'm going to hit something very hard. You can call it what you want to. I think it was the grace and the miraculous power of God. Somehow my car managed just to slide gently over into the concrete median, slid up the concrete. It sheared the right side of my car, but it didn't even fire the airbags. Now I want you to see where I was. It, and then I looked at oncoming traffic because I didn't know who was behind me. And, and I looked, and it was as if the angels held back people for like about a quarter of a mile, and I saw semis coming and cars coming and everything. And just for a split second, I had a chance. I'm still buckled in my seatbelt thinking about what happened in the seconds before. And before I unbuckled the seatbelt and ran to the other side of the road and called 911, I remember what I thought. I thought, I'm still here. For a few seconds, I didn't think I was going to be, but I'm still here. God must have work for me to do. 
when you find yourself just having emerged from the storm of your life, I think that's an important thing to say. I'm still here. God has work for me to do. And then I think it's important to learn the lessons. Because you see what happened to these people, and this is the only part I hate to tell you about this particular story. You know what happened to these people after God brought them through the valley of blessing? They went back and got on with their lives and sort of forgot about this. In fact, the Bible says the people still had not set their hearts on God. I mean, it was like, okay, thank you, God. You got me out of that. Okay, I'm going to move on. And if we don't learn the lessons, we could be held back and have to go through it again. This could sound corny, I hope it doesn't, but let me just tell you something. As one who's been through a lot of valleys in my life, I try to keep turf from all the valleys that I've been through in my heart so that I never forget that God brought me out and the lessons that I learned in that particular valley. And I find myself daily not trying to relive the pain, but just saying, God, I don't ever want to forget that day when I thought everything was going down the tubes and you stepped in and you delivered me, and I just want to thank you for it, and I want to remember the lessons that I learned in the valley. That's the valley of blessing. I want you to hear a song right now that says it better than I can. I want you to listen to this.
Thank you, Ryan and Melinda. Let me just say this as we, as we, we close this today. Guys, the most important valley that God brings you out of is your own sin and my sin. Because the one thing that really has the power to destroy us and brutalize us for eternity is the punishment for our own sin. And you know what it takes to, to go to heaven? You have to be perfect. And I can't be perfect for 30 minutes, which means I have absolutely no hope by myself. You remember when, when Jehoshaphat prayed, Lord, we don't know what to do, we're powerless. When you think about your own eternity, that's the prayer you have to pray. But here's the thing, God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross to pay for your sin. The blood that flowed out of his body was a currency to pay for all our sins, past, present, and future. And all, here's the thing, maybe this is the best day that we can say this. What God wants from you is simply to invite Jesus Christ into your life and to take that crown off your head and to lay it at the feet of him and make him Lord of your life. And if you would do that, here's what God promises you. He promises you that he'll wash all your sin away. And here's the amazing thing, even your future sins. Because you can't be perfect tomorrow. But Jesus, he hit for us and he ran for us, ran the bases and he, he was perfect. And for anyone who will receive him, you get his forgiveness, you get everlasting life, and you have the promise that God will never leave you and he'll take you through all the valleys until he takes you to heaven. And so it's a gift, and all you have to do is reach out and receive it and believe. I'm going to do something right now. I'm going to pray a prayer with you, and this is just a prayer of reaching out to Jesus. And if you'd like to pray it with me, you can. You don't have to understand everything about it. I don't understand everything about electricity, but I know how to plug something in. And uh, that's what God is asking, just so that you would trust him. You ready? I'll pray it slowly so that you can mean it. Here we go. Dear Jesus, I'm not perfect, and you know that. I am a sinner, but you died for me. Your blood washed my sins away, I believe, by faith. I receive you as my Savior, and I take the crown off my head, and I put it at your feet. I receive you as my King. Thank you for forgiving me in Jesus' name. Amen. You, you know, that might not have felt like it, but if you just prayed to receive Jesus, that's the biggest moment of your life. And I know it's a lot to, maybe that you and I don't understand, but we've done something to try to be a blessing. We want to give you something to, we want to give you a tool to help you understand it better. There's a packet, it's got a DVD and a little book I wrote that answers a lot of questions. The book looks like it was written by somebody with ADHD. It's real small, but it's got a lot of great stuff in it. And then on top of that, there's a coupon for a new Bible. Now, here's something we're going to be able to offer you for the first time today. There are two places where you can get this packet. You can go straight out to the middle of guest services, but many of us come in the back entrance. So right adjacent to the coffee shop, there's another little guest services. So if you just prayed to receive Jesus and you'd like to have this packet, all you got to do is bring this card. There's a little picture of the packet. Just put your name on there and check the box. I prayed to receive Christ. Bring the card to either place, front entrance or back entrance. And just say, I pray with Mark, and they'll give you this. Thanks for being here the first weekend of Valleys. We crank it up again next week. See you soon.